Hey everyone, welcome to the Bigger Pockets Podcast Network. I'm your host today, Dave Meyer, and we're going to be digging into the state of multifamily in 2024. And to talk about this really important topic, we're bringing on two of the best in the business. Honestly, these two investors are guys I've been following for most of my career. They're people I look up to, and I promise you are going to learn a lot from each of them. The first is Matt Faircloth. You've probably heard him on this podcast before. You've been listening for a while. He's the owner of the DeRosa Group. He's a Bigger Pockets Bootcamp instructor. He wrote a book called Raising Private Capital and knows a ton about real estate investing. The other is Brian Burke, who is the president and CEO. CEO of Praxis Capital. He has been investing for a long time, over 30 years, and he has bought and sold over 4,000 multifamily units. So if you guys want to learn about what's going on in the multifamily market, these two are the people you want to be listening to. And the reason we want to talk about multifamily right now is because it's facing market conditions that are very different than the residential market. If you paid attention in 2023, the residential market was kind of flat. There wasn't a lot going on in terms of sales volumes, but things kind of chugged along and honestly outperformed a lot of expectations. But when you look at the multifamily market, things are very different. Prices have dropped anywhere from 10 to 20%, depending on where you are in the country. And this obviously creates risk for multifamily investors. But the question is, does it also create opportunity in 2024 to buy at a discount and get some great value? So that's what we're going to jump into with Brian and Matt today. So with no further ado, let's bring them on. We are, of course, here today to talk about the multifamily market. And so, Brian, I'd love just to have your summary, first of all, about what was going on in the multifamily market in 2023. Well, nothing good was going on in the multifamily market in 2023. Uh, <laughs> you know, I, I always say that, uh, you know, there's a good time to buy, there's a good time to sell, and there's a good time to sit on the beach. And so this beach here in the background is just really a demonstration that I, uh, I, I live by what I say and I actually <laughs> put my money where my mouth is. Uh, there's really no reason to invest in real estate in 2023. It's just better to be on the beach or play golf, which is what I think I'm going to do after I get done recording this podcast, uh, because uh, you know I'm not really paying that close of attention to uh, making acquisitions right now because there's just no reason to. 2023, I think, was a year of challenge when you had uh, a bid-ask spread between buyers and sellers where nobody could get on the same page. Uh, buyers wanted to pay less than sellers were willing to take, and sellers wanted more than buyers were willing to pay. And there was no bridging that, uh, that impasse. And I, I don't think that 2024 is going to look much different, frankly. Matt, what do you think? Would you concur? Well, you know, it, it, it's easy when you're Brian Burke. Uh, to say I'm I'm gonna just chill out and and and, uh, and and not do anything. Yeah, but but I do. It's it's through no harm in trying that we didn't do anything either. We worked really hard to try and do deals last year. Um, but Brian's correct. The bid ask spread was too far apart for most deals to get done. And those that I saw do mid-sized multifamily deals, which is you know just what what we are targeting and what Brian's targeting as well. 
those that were, t- that were targeting those kinds of deals uh, and, and that got them likely overpaid. Uh, if you look at where the market is now and you look at where things are starting to settle down, um, I think that we hit the peak in 2023 um, of, of the market. I, I'm not sure if Brian uh, disagrees with me on that one or not, but I think that we ma- I think that the market hit its apex and it's tough to do deals when that's happening, right? And so now uh, on, our, on our way back down, we really spent 2023 tightening up our company. We made a lot of hires, changed a lot of things around and tried really hard to get deals done. Didn't, you just, just through no harm of trying, but just the numbers weren't there. The, the, what sellers were asking and what properties were trading for. Other people were buying these properties, just not us. It just didn't make sense. Just didn't, didn't pencil out, would not have achieved anywhere near the investor returns that we wanted to see. So we tried, but we didn't, uh, we struck out last year. And I don't think that's going to happen this year though. Matt and I did a podcast in August together on the, on the market. Yeah. And uh, you know, if you remember, we had a, we had a pact to disagree with one another. So I'll start it off this time. Uh, I'm going to disagree with Matt's 2023 calling the top. I think the top was actually in 2022. Uh, and so, you know, we started selling in 2021 and continued selling into the early part of 2022. And then I think the market started to fall. So, you know, while Matt was out digging for needles in haystacks, he could have been out here on the beach with me the whole time. Come on, man. I could have been joining Brian on the beach, um, but I'm stubborn. I kept trying to get deals done. And Brian, Brian ended up, this is, I'm not going to say this very often on the show. But Brian was right um, that uh, that, the, that there was not deals to be had, um, and and maybe the market did peak in in 2022. But I still think that there were a lot of stragglers, a lot of last of the Mohicans, so to speak, of folks trying to get deals done. Brian um, in 2023, and I mean, like we got bid out on a lot of deals, so there are still people that are you know literally trying to force a square peg into a round hole with a very big hammer, trying to hammer that square peg into that round hole to make deals work. And and uh, a lot of deals fell out, but they still went under contract. And we got beat at the bidding table. So I, again, don't think that's going to happen moving forward though. So let's dig into that a little bit, Matt. You said that things were not penciling. You were trying to bid. Yep. Prices are starting to come down in multifamily from 2022 until now. What about the dynamics of the market makes you want to bid less than you would have in 2022 or 2023? And what is preventing deals from penciling? Well, in, in, I mean, it's very simple in that the, unless you're going to go and do a deal and just buy it straight cash, uh, you're going to have to borrow money, right? Um, and the cost of money, the cost of money has gotten much more expensive. In some cases, it's doubled, if not more, um, meaning a three and a half, four percent interest rate uh, is, is now getting bid at eight percent on a bridge on a bridge loan, if not more, right? Um, and so that same deal that that would have maybe made fiscal sense to a degree, maybe even would have been pushing the envelope at debt quotes of 2000, uh, 2020, 2021, um, is now subject to debt numbers in the six, seven, eight, nine percent range uh, today. So that's the main thing that makes uh, the numbers not pencil. In addition to that, um, I think that we were getting beat by folks that were underwriting to 2021 and 2022's uh, rent increase numbers, saying, "Well." Let's say Phoenix, Arizona, or um, or what a market that's seen a lot of rent growth. And I'm not throwing shade at Phoenix. I'm just saying that market has seen a lot of rent growth. In, and so, if I underwrite a deal, assuming 
right? And you know what happens when you assume, right? Um, make, assuming that rent growth in Phoenix is going to continue. It Maybe that deal pencils out, but we weren't willing to do that. And we were we kind of felt like rent had capped and the data now shows that it has, but we were assuming that it had six months ago. And so you go in with you know new numbers for debt and not numbers for rent expansion. It's not going to pencil. Now, again, other folks are making other assumptions. And when you underrate a deal, you have to make certain assumptions we were making more conservative ones and that added up to the numbers coming in may at, at best case, 10% below what the seller was asking. Um, and, but the deals were still trading at or around asking up until recently. All right, Matt. So as you've said, the price of debt and borrowing money has made deals really difficult to pencil in 2023. Now we got to take a quick break, but when we come back, Brian, I want to hear if you agree with Matt's analysis. Buy low, sell high. Very easy to say, but not always so easy to do. For example, high interest rates are hurting the real estate market right now. Demand is dropping and prices in a lot of markets are falling, even for many of the best assets. So it's no wonder the Fundrise flagship fund plans to go on a buying spree, expanding its billion-dollar real estate portfolio over the next few months. You can add the Fundrise flagship fund to your portfolio in just minutes and with as little as $10 by visiting Fundrise.com slash pockets. Fundrise.com slash pockets. Carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses of the Fundrise flagship fund before investing. This and other information can be found in the fund's prospectus at Fundrise.com slash flagship. This is a paid advertisement. You're trying to close on your next rental, so why is your insurance company dragging its feet? With long lead times and never-ending paper forms, it's no wonder it takes forever to finally get a policy. Modern investors deserve better. They deserve Steadily.com. At Steadily.com, you'll get fast, affordable landlord insurance available online 24-7 in just a few clicks. You can even get next-day coverage, which takes just minutes, by the way, to obtain. And you can do it all from your phone. Steadily was founded by landlords who created insurance products tailored to the unique needs of this industry. It's their sole focus, and that's why landlords nationwide consistently rate them 4.8 out of 5 stars. So whether you've got a single family, short-term, or multifamily portfolio, Steadily.com can secure the best coverage at the best price to protect your properties. Discover how Steadily can save you both time and money on your rental property insurance. Visit Steadily.com for a commitment-free quote tailored to your needs today. This show is sponsored by Airbnb. Did you know that I turned one of my first homes into an Airbnb? It's true. And it even helped me get the extra income I needed to launch my real estate career. So if you want to try your hand at making even more income with your property, Airbnb is the place to be. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Brian, what about you? you? You said that you basically sat out 2023. If you weren't looking at deals, were there any macro indicators or anything that you periodically peeked in on to know, you know, it's not even worth looking at individual deals at this time? Yeah, you know, we've been following it pretty closely uh, to to see when the right time is to get back in. And Matt's right. I mean, uh, God, I hate to say that. Uh, Matt's right. But, you know, <laughs> the, the cost of debt has definitely been a factor in, you know, why deals haven't been trading. There's no doubt about that. But it goes beyond just the cost of debt. It's the cost of the entire capital stack. Uh, yeah. Even equity, when you think about it, you know, three years ago, investors were trying to find places to put their money. And, 
you know, they were getting a quarter of a percent in a savings account. So these alternative real estate investments looked pretty darn good. Well, now they can get five and a half in a money market. And so taking on a bunch of additional risk to, you know, maybe start out at 3% cash on cash return, if you can even find a deal that throws that off in year one, followed by, you know, maybe getting up to six, seven or 8% cash on cash return in a few years, the, the risk premium just isn't there. So it's more difficult for investors to fund these kinds of deals. So I think availability of capital and the cost of the whole capital stack is part of it. It. Uh, the other part of it is expenses are growing. Uh, insurance is getting much more expensive in some markets. Uh, utilities are going up. Payroll is going up. All of those things uh, are getting more expensive. And then layering on top of that, the income stream isn't growing. And, and really the reason that people were paying so much money for income streams, which is really what we're buying. Yes, we're buying real estate, but the reason we're buying the real estate is because it throws off an income stream. Income streams were growing and growing rapidly a few years ago, but now they're not doing that. Income streams are shrinking. Rents are declining. Mm -hmm. Vacancies are increasing as you know, we see some trouble in the job market. We'll probably see increases in delinquency. At the same time, expenses are going up, interest rates are going up, the whole cost of capital is going up. So you just can't pay as much for a shrinking income stream as you could pay for a growing one. So really what this whole thing comes down to is price. You know, you can make any deal out there work at the right price. And the problem that we're seeing is that sellers want a price the assets they want to sell based upon the things they were seeing in the market two or three years ago. And that just isn't reality. So, you know, what am I looking at, Dave, in terms of indicators? I'm looking at more of the psychology than I am specific numerical indicators that are very easy to quantify. I want to see when, when people start hating on real estate, uh, then that's going to be be when it starts to get interesting. When you start to see more foreclosures, that's going to be when it's going to be interesting, especially if no one's bidding on them. Uh, when you see pessimism in the, uh, about the economy, it's going to get more interesting. That's what I'm, I'm looking for. I'm not looking for, oh, rates have to hit X and rent growth has to hit Y. And while certainly those factors will make it easier to quantify future income streams, that isn't telling me exactly when I think we've hit bottom. Well said. I still, I have uh, perhaps just a, a more optimism. I'm not sure Brian's familiar with the term, um, but I have optimism for uh, for 2024 uh, with regards to where things are going to go. Uh, did we hit the bottom? No, but but I think that we're going to see more things. And we even, we're starting to see more opportunities open towards the end of Q4 of last year. You know, there was one deal that we looked at uh, that was being sold for what the, uh, the, the, the lower than what the, the seller paid for it. The seller paid 90,000 a door for it two years ago. It was uh, on sale for 75,000 a door, pretty much what they owed on it. And this is a buyer that, uh, a seller that bit off way more than they could chew, bought way more than what they could handle. And were just needed to unload. And they were end up cutting a lot of their equity. That was the beginning of what I think we're going to see more of, um, of, uh, of that. But you've got to, you, you got to have a really small haystack if you want to find a needle, right? And so we, our, our company's only hunting in a few markets and we were starting to see, um, a few distressed deals show up in those markets. And I think it's an indicator of what we're going to see more of this year. One of the things I keep wondering about is when this distress is going to come, because it seems like people have been talking about it for a long time. Yeah. It, you barely go a day without a top media outlet talking about the 
impending commercial real estate collapse and how much commercial real estate mortgages are due coming due, but it hasn't really happened. Matt, it sounds like you're starting to see a little bit, but are you, let me just ask you this. Are you surprised that there hasn't been more distress to this point? Well, let's comment on that because our lovely friends in the media and and Dave, I just commend you because you've been, you've done a great job on this show and, and on your outlets and on your Instagram channel as well in breaking down a lot of the reports that we see on the real estate market in the media, right? So um, there's a lot of media about this pending tidal wave of less commercial real estate that's going to be with all this debt that's coming due, right? Okay. That's true that there is a lot of debt that's coming due that uh, properties are performing at lower interest rates, you know, three, four or 5% interest rates, right? And those properties are cash flowing or just getting by now. And then those rates are going to reset, right? That's what they're saying is those rates are not going to go from three, four, 5% up to six, seven, 8%. True. The thing that, that they leave out there in a lot of those articles or in, in folks that are screaming that out that from the mountaintop is that most of that debt, is retail and office. And that's not a space that Brian and I are in. Um, and I don't want to be in retail and office. I, there's enough, there's, there's enough to do in the multifamily space. Um, and in a new space that we're trying on, that's not like retail shopping centers and office space. So we do believe there's benefit in other asset classes, but not there. Multifamily is starting to see some shifts, but I don't think it's going to be a blood in the street kind of thing. Like a lot of folks are predicting, like a lot of media is predicting it's going to be. It just there's not enough debt that's in distress that's going to come due. The number that I saw was something like Bloomberg issued an article, sixty-seven uh, billion in uh, in in debt that that uh, that that's air that's uh, marked as distressed. Right. The thing is, that sounds like a lot of money, but it's not compared to the amount of debt that's in an all multifamily. So sixty-seven billion in multifamily debt is marked as distressed, but in like the the trillions in multifamily debt that's out there, that is a smidge. And so mm-hmm. what I think that we're going to see is strategic outlets of, of bad, of debts, a bad, a bad debt and deals that are going to get released to the market. But is, is it going to create a crazy market correction? No, I don't think so. I think over time, cap rates are going to go up and sellers are going to have to get real. But I, I disagree with Brian that there's going to be like this panic in the multifamily market and that it's, it's going to become a space of bad emotion of like, ah, you know what, multifamily, forget that. I don't want to be in that market. And that's when you really want to buy anything you can get your hands on. But I think that the opportunity is going to be in niches of markets, meaning like if I choose Phoenix as a market I want to target, me just really drilling in on that market and then finding the opportunities, maybe the broker's pocket listings or the off the market stuff that is going to be, you know, passed around to a small circle. I think that's where good deals are going to be had is in inside of market niches. And Brian, it sounds like you think there might be more of an inflection point where distress hits a certain level and things start to accelerate downwards, I would say. Well, I think I would say uh, not quite yeah, those extreme set of terms. But when you when you look at, I, I saw an article recently was talking about Atlanta, Georgia, right? Atlanta, Georgia is a big multifamily market. There's lots of multifamily units in Atlanta, Georgia. And it was somewhere in the neighborhood of uh, 30 or 30 or 40% of the properties in Atlanta had loans maturing in the next two years. And a large percentage of those that have loans maturing in the next two years were loans that were originated in this kind of like height of the market period of 2020 through 2022. And so those were bought at very high valuations. Valuations now are lower. 
And when those loans come due, there's going to be some kind of a reckoning. Something has to happen. Either capital has to be injected into those deals mm -hmm. or the deals will end up selling or getting foreclosed. And 30% is a big number. And certainly not all of those are going to end up wind up in some kind of a distress. But that would be a major market mover if 30% of the properties started going into foreclosure. And that would cause a cascade of negative effects in properties that weren't uh, experiencing loan maturities. Do I think that's going to happen and play out that way? Not really. What I think more is more likely is that there's going to be a lot of these loans that are going to end up trading behind the scenes where uh, large private equity is going to come in, absorb the loans, buy them at a discount, uh, and then ultimately either they'll foreclose and take the properties and they'll get them at a really good basis, or they'll sell them at current market value and probably make a profit based on the spread between the price they purchased the loan for and the price they sold the asset for, which will, by the way, be a lot less than what that asset sold for when it was bought by the current owner. You know, I've, I, we had a deal uh, that we sold a couple of years ago, and the uh, current owner was, is trying to sell, and I calculated based upon their asking price, it's a $17 million loss in two years. So the distress has already begun to happen. Prices have already fallen. Whether or not people realize it or can quantify it yet, I don't know because there just hasn't been a lot of transaction volume. So maybe it's being swept under the rug where you know people are like, oh, you know, the market's not going to crash. No, I'm sorry to tell you, it's already crashed. Prices coming down 20 to 30% has already happened. The question is going to be, do they come down another 10 or 20%? And that's what I'm waiting to see play out, whether or not that happens. Because one could easily argue, oh, prices are down 20, 30%. It's a great time to buy. It is, unless there's still more downward movement. So what I want to see is I want to see that those prices have troughed and that they're not going to continue to slide downwards before I'm ready to get in. I'd rather I'd rather get in once they've started to climb and maybe miss the bottom than to get in while they're still falling and then have to ride the bottom. Mm -hmm. Rather than catch a falling knife, right? Exactly. Yeah. The the data that I'm reading, I mean it's, I mean man, that sounds crazy for Atlanta like third I mean that means like third, first of all, I am just going to throw back at you what you just said what I heard. 30% of Atlanta traded in the last three years, right? That's a lot. That's a lot of real estate. Um, and that means that 30% of Atlanta is in is in a distressed position. Yeah, 30% of the outstanding multifamily debt is maturing in the next two years. That doesn't necessarily mean that they traded. They might have refinanced. But 30% mm -hmm. uh, okay. of the debt is, is, uh, coming, is maturing in the next two years. Yeah. I, the, the, what I, here's what I've read, right? They're not, there's, they're not everybody is, is scrappy, right? You know, syndicators like you and me, right? Like there's, um, way larger corporations than, than mine and yours that own thousands and thousands of doors. And these guys are putting in, um, in, you know, uh, loans backed by insurance companies going in at 50, 55% loan to value on their properties. Uh, cause they've owned them. These are legacy assets. They've owned for way more than five, 10, you know, they just, you know, just, they, they just hold their, they're buy and hold forever kind of companies. Right. Um, and, I, I, the, the data that I've seen are that those companies are going to be just fine. Um, that, that if they end up having to take a little bit of a haircut on valuation, their LTV is so low that, oh, I can't refi out at 55. I'll have to refi up to, uh, to 60 or 75. So I just want to say something about the 30% number because that number is actually not that high to me because if you think about the average length of a commercial loan, I don't know, you guys know, what's the average length of your your term on a commercial on commercial debt? 5 to 7 years. 
Or seven to ten. <laughs> well, 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 hang on. You got, you got bridge debt in there, Brian, and stuff like that. So I, I think that the the bridge two to three year product ten, may pull down the five set five to ten Fair enough. Uh, agency. So meet me at five. You accept my All terms, right, I'll meet you there. You got it. Okay, I got cool. it. Five, right. five okay. it is. The, the, the answer is okay, five. If five <laughs> is the average debt, then doesn't that reason in the next two years, 40% of loans should be due? Because if they come up every, once every five years, right? I'm going to let Brian into that one. <laughs> yeah. Well, the problem <laughs> is, is that the debt is coming due at a really bad time. Certainly, debt is always mature, yes. right? That, all, that happens all the time. But yes. how often does debt mature that was taking it out when prices were very high and is maturing at a time when prices are very low? That's the disease. It isn't as much the percentage of loans. It's the timing and the market conditions upon which those loans were originated versus when they mature. That's the problem. Totally. I totally agree with that. I just want our listeners to not be shocked by this number of 30% and that it's like some unusual thing. Because if you consider five to seven years being the average debt, then always somewhere between 28 and 40% of debt is always coming due in the next two years. So it's just something to keep to keep things in perspective. I think it's somewhat of a shocker number, right, Dave? It's one of those things where it's like 40% and it makes people say, oh my goodness, (laughs) that's so much debt. And I actually think, I I read something that I also think it might actually, that number might be low. It might be higher in the next few years because it sounds like a lot of operators were able to extend their loans for a year or two based on their initial terms, Mm -hmm. but those extensions might be running out. And so- to Brian's point, we're getting some really distressed or bad situations coming due in a, at an inopportune time. Here's what I'm hearing: Brian and I are plugged into very lovely rumor mills and friends. You know, have lots of other friends in the industry, <laughs> right? So here's what the Coconut Telegraph is telling us uh, that I hear anyway: um, banks are doing workouts, right? They don't want these things back, I, although they're very pragmatic and very dollars and cents oriented. And if you owe fifteen million dollars on a property that is now worth seven, the bank's probably going to say, "Yeah, I'm probably going to need to go and take that thing back and get and collect as many of our chips as we can." But if you are in the middle of a value add program and you've got some and you've got some liquidity uh, and you're doing what you can do, what I'm hearing is that banks are doing workouts. They're willing, and this is this is on floating rate bridge deals, right? That's kind of the toxicity that's in the market. These bridge deals. It's not so much someone that's got an agency loan that they've had interest rate locked for the last five years and they got a refi. That person's going to figure it out. I'm talking about this bridge loan that they bought, you know, two years ago on an asset that they needed to do a ginormous value add program on and try and double the value of the property in a year or two, and it didn't work out, right? I'm hearing banks are doing workouts and they're allowing people to, uh, they're negotiating. Uh, Brian, as what I'm hearing, you probably heard this too. They're they're being somewhat negotiable on the rate caps, which are these awful things that are really uh, causing a lot of strain on on a lot of owners. Is these uh, rate cap was just an insurance policy you got to buy to keep your rate artificially lower than what it really is. I've heard that there's that. And I've heard that the banks are cooperating with owners that are, that can show that they're doing the right thing. And they're not so far into the hole that there's no, there's no light at the end of the tunnel. Um, Brian, I'm curious what you're hearing on that. And again, this is my inner optimist. Uh, I'm not sure if you want to access that part of, of, of the, of, of the outlook or not. You're more than welcome to give me the other view. 
Yeah, the other view is that they can postpone their uh, this stuff all they want, but what they can't eliminate is the day of reckoning. Sooner yeah. or later, <laughs> something has to happen. They either have to refi, they have to sell, they have to foreclose. Something is going to have to happen sooner or later because even if they even if the borrowers have to pay higher interest rates and delay rate caps, sooner or later the borrowers run out of cash, and then the borrowers have to go to their investors and say, "Can you contribute more cash?" and the investors. Are going, I'm not throwing any more good dollars after bad. No way. I'm not sending you any money. And then something has to happen. The lenders can do what they can do initially, but then the lenders will start getting pressure. And so here's what a lot of people don't realize is that lenders aren't loaning their own money. Lenders are loaning other people's money as well. Yeah. And that might be money that they're borrowing from a warehouse line, money that they've raised from investors, money that they're getting from depositors, wherever that money comes from, they might be getting pressure saying like, you got to get this stuff off your books. You're not looking so good. Regulators are putting on pressure. So eventually lenders have to say like, we can't just kick the can down the road forever. Something's got to give. And that day has to come. Brian, you seem very convinced that the writing is on the wall and a day of reckoning is coming. But Matt, you seem to be more of an optimist. So I'm curious to hear from you. Do you see the same thing? But before we get into that, we have to hear a quick word from our show sponsors. Remember when you had to pay to get a lead's phone number? It was like the dark ages. Until Deal Machine made skip tracing a thing of the past. Now, with your Deal Machine plan, you'll get unlimited access to phone numbers and contact information for no extra cost. That's right. Get high-quality, reliable information trusted by leading financial institutions, all fully compliant with the federal Do Not Call list. Explore over 150 data points, including age, gender, marital status, occupation, and a ton more. Trust me, this is the data you need for off-market deals. With new filters, people flags, and color-coded phone numbers, lead management just got a ton easier. Ready to step up your investing game? Sign up for a Deal Machine plan today and gain immediate access to this unlimited treasure trove of contact information and phone numbers. Just head to dealmachine.com BP. Transform your lead generation and deal-making strategies with Deal Machine. Sign up today and start exploring the unlimited possibilities at dealmachine.com BP. This show is sponsored by Airbnb. Did you know that a long time ago, before I ever started my real estate business, I turned one of my first primary residences into an Airbnb? And that's the extra income that I needed from Airbnb that gave me the confidence to go out and work for myself and eventually quit my 9-to-5 job. And now I have dozens of Airbnbs all over the country. I've even partnered up with the old David Green on a recent property in Scottsdale to take our portfolio to the next level. And of course, we host it on Airbnb. But you don't need to be a full-time real estate investor to start on Airbnb. As a matter of fact, I was self-managing 10 properties while working my 9-to-5 job, so I know anybody can do it. Think about it this way. You're looking for extra income and going on a vacation. Wouldn't it be great to rent out your space and let your property pay for itself while you're gone? I did this one time. I pitched my wife and my roommate because we were house hacking on the idea of renting out our home, and it paid for all of our expenses on a trip to Mexico City. So go and give it a try. It might just change your life just like it did mine. And I really do mean that. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. The dream of owning a vacation home can be daunting. From finding the best guests, to the maintenance, to organizing the cleaners after every guest day. With Vacasa, they make that dream into a reality. 
As a full-service vacation home management company with vacation homes in key destinations across the U.S., they know a thing about how to make owning a vacation home easy and profitable. On top of proactive property maintenance visits by professional local teams, a hospitality-driven booking platform, and around-the-clock support, Vacasa earns homeowners an average of 20% more revenue from their vacation homes. Vacasa is always thinking of ways to simplify the vacation home owning experience by putting your home to work for you. If you're looking to make more from your vacation home, work with the reliable property manager, and finally have peace of mind, partner with Vacasa at vacasa.com biggerpockets. That's vacasa.com biggerpockets. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games. There are a lot of folks that believe that the Fed saying that they were going to cut rates three times this year that read that. I mean, I, had, I talked to one person and said, well, they said three, so that probably means nine, right? Um, like what? We're not going back to the party time of like interest rates being two and a half, three percent. That's not going to happen again, right? Um, and if the Fed it really does cut rates three times, that's not. It's going to be a dent in compared to what they've done already, right? So um, there are folks that believe that by banks cooperating with borrowers, that will allow some time for rates to get down to where the borrower needs them to be, probably back down to like three and a half, four percent. I don't think that's going to happen. Okay, uh, I'll I'll take that. Oh, what you got? I'll take on that argument. So so you're saying that interest rates aren't going to get back down to two percent. I agree with you. Now, at, when interest rates were at two percent, people were buying multifamily properties and all kinds of commercial real estate at extraordinarily high prices. And those high prices means that they were low cap rates. And cap rate is a mathematical formula that's used to take the temperature of the market. Some people say, oh, it's a 4% cap rate means you get a 4% return. That's hogwash. We could have a whole show on that. But the bottom line <laughs> is, is that very low cap rates this mathematical formula that we're talking about, it means that the market is extraordinarily hot. The market is not extraordinarily hot anymore. So a 4% cap rate that's now a 6% cap rate, what that means is that's a that's a 2% difference. Doesn't sound like much, but going from a 4 to a 6 is a 50% haircut in value. Mathematically speaking, you have to cut the price of the property by 50% for the income to go from a 4% cap, 4 cap rate to a 6% cap rate. And that's what we're seeing now. So when these loans finally do come due and the property is worth half of what it was at the time the loan was originated, what may happen? The lender is really going to force their hand when the value can climb just high enough for the lender to get their money back. They don't care about the owner. They don't care about the borrower. They don't care about the investors that put their hard-earned money into that deal. All the lender wants is their money back. And as soon as that moment comes, the bank is suddenly going to become that much less cooperative. And when that happens, that's the day of reckoning. It has to happen sooner or later. Now, don't get me wrong. I mean, I, I have a lot of this pessimism and stuff, but fundamentally, the fundamentals of housing are extraordinarily sound. People need to have a place to live. There's a housing shortage across the US. There's Right now, there's a little bit of a glut of construction. That's going to work its way out because nobody can afford to get a construction loan right now. Banks aren't lending. Pretty soon, all the new deliveries are going to stop. The 
fundamentals of housing are sound. Housing is a good investment, but timing means something. Buying at the bottom of the market and riding the wave up is so much different of an outcome than if you're buying like you know, before the market is finished falling and you have to ride through a three or four year cycle to get right back to even, that just doesn't work. So I'm, I'm bullish for maybe 2025, 2026, 2027. Uh, but short term bullish, no, I can't get there. The fundamentals are there, but, but the rest of the equation just doesn't work yet. So now that we've heard your takes on both last year, 2023, and what might happen this year, what advice would you give to investors who want to be in the multifamily market this year? Great question, because uh, unless you're Brian Burke, uh, you can't just hang out on the beach and play golf. I mean, you know, in and, and, and that. So let's let's see how let's see how Brian handles that one. For what I think that investors should do, uh, if they really want to get into the multifamily market, if they want to if they want to get involved in what I think is going to be a changing market, there will be opportunities that are going to come up. What I believe you should do is to do what we did, which is stay super market centric. Uh, if it's Atlanta, because according to, to Brian, like 30% of the, of the multifamilies in Atlanta are going to be refinancing or, re, or um, with debt coming due, just for example, and that's probably true in most markets. If you're, if you stay market centric, pick a market, not two, not 10, a market and get to know all the brokers in that market. There are deals that are going to come up of that 30% that are likely going to be sold, you know, at a significant discount off the market. Is market pricing where it's going to be a big solid yes to get in? No. I don't think it is. I don't think that the market itself, where, where all the properties are going to be trading or what sellers are going to be asking is going to make sense. So I think that you need to be the, you know, riches in the niches, so to speak, to find a market and, and then get networked and look for opportunities that may come up. You could also do what we did, which is continue to monitor multifamily, make bids, rebid, uh, something like 280 deals last year, or at least analyze 280 deals and bid most of those as well. But we also looked at other asset classes as well. Uh, our company's looking at everything from flagged hotels, uh, and that, that is, a, that is a solid asset class that makes a lot of cash flow, uh, to other asset classes, including loans. Our company's getting, um, into issuing loans for cash flow. And the bottom line, guys, is whatever you get yourself into this year, it's gotta be a cash flowing asset. It's gotta be something that produces regular measurable cash flow on a monthly, quarterly basis. Cause cash flow is what got my company, DeRosa Group, through 2008, 9, 10. And it's what's going to get folks through 2014, 15 and into the future is cash flowing assets and not two, three, four percent cash flow. Significant high single digit cash flow is what's going to be um, is what you're going to need to go after. So that's what I say you pursue. All right. Well, challenge accepted, Matt. So not everybody has to sit on the beach for the next year. I do. I, I, I can't make that claim. Uh, I'm, I might, and I might not. There might be some opportunities out there to get uh, to buy this year. You're too itchy, man. But I don't see you sitting on the beach. Yeah, probably not. You're gonna be doing it. Too. I gotta, I gotta do something. I yeah. gotta do something. There's, there's no <laughs> doubt about that. But so, so here's kind of my, my thoughts on this are, uh, if you're, if you're just getting started in real estate investing or you're just getting started in multifamily, you actually have an advantage over, you know, Matt and myself. And that may seem awful interesting to, to make that claim. But here's why I say that. Uh, 
I, I think that you're going to find more opportunity in small multifamily now than you will in large multi. Now, I, I'm, I'm not going to go out and buy anything less than 100 units. It just it, for, for our company, it just doesn't make sense to do that. You know, Matt is probably somewhere in that zone too. Uh, you know, we're not out in the duplex, fourplex, 10 unit, 20 unit space. But if you're getting, if you're new to multi, that's really where you should start anyway. You want to get that experience and that knowledge and figure out how it works. That helps you build an investor base. It helps you build broker relationships. And frankly, in that space, in those small multi-space, I think that's where the needles are going to be found in the haystacks because mm. it's the small deals where you have the mom and pop landlords, that quintessential, as they've called, you know, the tired landlord that wants to get out. Yep. Uh, you know, that's where the people are searching eviction records to talk to the owner to see like, hey, I see you have all these evictions. Do you want to sell? Because it's a pain in the neck. And people are like, yeah, I'm out. You've got retiring uh, owners that want to get out. That's where you're going to find opportunity, in my view. I don't think you're going to find opportunity in 100 and 200 unit deals because number one, those buyers are very sophisticated, generally well capitalized. But even if they're not, uh, they've got sophisticated lenders. They've got all kinds of challenges. Prices are down. They probably haven't owned them all that long to have a ton of equity versus you know the mom and pop landlord that's owned it for 50 years that has the thing paid off. They could even maybe give you seller financing. If you if you want to get started. I would suggest getting started right now on two things. One, build your business, build your systems, build your investor base, build your broker relationships, because those are all things there's plenty of time to do. Brokers will return your calls right now because no one else is calling them. You might as well give them a call. Uh, build that stuff now because when you are busy and the market is taking off, you're going to be running 100 miles an hour with your hair on fire. There's going to be no time to do that. The other thing, build all of your systems, get together your underwriting system learn how to underwrite, take Matt's classes and BP's seminars and all this different stuff. Learn how to analyze deals and get ready and then go out and look for smaller multi where all the deals are. That's going to be a great way to start. Then when all the big multi comes back in a year, two, three, however long it takes, you'll be more ready for that because you'll have all this experience and you'll have all the systems, you'll have the relationships. And I, I think that's really the play right now. Well said. So Matt, tell us just briefly, what are you going to do in 2024? Great question. What DeRosa Group, our company is going to do is we're going to continue to monitor multifamily in the markets we're already invested in so we can continue to scale out geographically in those geographic markets. We're going to pursue new asset classes. Like I said, uh, flagged hotels is an asset class that we're going after uh, aggressively. And we also have a fund that just puts money into hard money, just, just, a, just a debt fund that's just an easy way to turn money around and produce easy cash flow. So we're keeping our investors funds moving in other asset classes while we monitor multifamily very, very closely and continue to uh, bid it and hope that we find something that makes fiscal sense for our investors. And what about you, Brian? Is it just golf this year? Yeah, you know, I'm not that good of a golfer. So I'd, I'd like to say that, yeah, I could just play golf all year, but I'm really not that good. So I think, uh, no, we'll do more than that. Like Just like Matt, we're, we are watching the uh, multifamily market extremely closely. We're looking for the signs and signals that we've reached a bottom and it's time to invest. Meanwhile, we're investing in real estate debt. Uh, we have a debt fund where we've been buying uh, loans that are secured by real estate to professional real estate 
estate investors. I think right now the play for us is we're we're more of watching out for downside risk than trying to push upside. So uh, that's going to be our play for 2024. And then uh, as soon as we see the right signal, then it's uh, full speed ahead on uh, searching for upside again. All right. Well, thank you both so much for joining us. We really appreciate your insights and your friendly debates here. Hopefully we'll have you both back on in a couple of months to continue this conversation. Can't wait. On the Market was created by me, Dave Meyer, and Kalen Bennett. The show is produced by Kalen Bennett with editing by Exodus Media. Copywriting is by Calico Content, and we want to extend a big thank you to everyone at Bigger Pockets for making this show possible. The housing market is changing, and finding your way right now can be a bit tricky. There are rate shifts, there are confusing headlines, but at the end of the day, your goal hasn't changed. You probably still want financial freedom as much as ever. Well, the good thing is that experienced investors know it's not about trying to time the market, it's about the amount of time you have in the market. And if you're ready to get into real estate investing game, you can still do that, or you can take your game to the next level by finding an investor-friendly agent. With BiggerPockets Agent Finder, you can find the right agent in just a few minutes. You head over to biggerpockets.com deals, enter in some details about what you want, where you want to buy, and boom, you instantly get matched with an investor-friendly agent who fits the bill. These local market experts can help you navigate the neighborhoods, analyze the numbers, and take action with confidence once and for all. This free resource is only available at biggerpockets.com deals. Get an agent, get the deal, and get closer to financial freedom at biggerpockets.com deals. That's biggerpockets.com deals to find your investor-friendly agent today. The content of this podcast is for informational purposes only. Past performance is not indicative of future results, and all hosts and participant opinions are their own. Investments in any asset, real estate included, involves risk. Use your best judgment and consult with qualified advisors before investing. Only risk capital you can afford to lose. BiggerPockets LLC disclaims all liability for direct, indirect, consequential, or other damages arising from reliance upon information presented in this podcast.